I do think we're called to die for our faith. And I pray to God that we'll all be ready the day that that knock comes on our door for martyrdom. But that's not what we're being called to do today. Today, we're being called to live for it. These are the inspirational words of Monsi Alvarado, the Vice President and Executive Director of the Beckett Fund for Religious Freedom. And this is OSV Talks, a show where we explore topics from prominent Catholic leaders to spark discussion, explore new or re-explore old approaches, and inspire creative thinking, all from the heart of the church. My name is Doug Tuk, and I will be your host. At the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, the organization that I have the privilege of working at, a nonprofit law firm that defends religious freedom for all people, all religious traditions, we have a phrase for that. Religious freedom is the right to be wrong. We're not just beings floating around with no purpose and no calling. We're individuals, uniquely fashioned, with our eyes fixed on the far horizon, looking toward the transcendent, asking the big questions about who we are and why we are. And in asking these big questions about who we are and why we are, we discover some things. And in actually believing in what we discover, we are exercising this important human right, this human right that no government may lawfully deny. Monsi was one of our featured speakers for OSV Talks, filmed before a live studio audience during the week of October 5th through 9th, 2020. We also had the privilege of interviewing her about her convictions and life experiences. Her full talk is available at osvtalks.com. Her message is titled, Sex, Nuns, and Martyrs, The Relevance of Religious Freedom. What is religious freedom, really? What is its purpose in the U.S., and how is it abused by those who don't understand it? In her OSV talk, Montserrat Alvarado provides a stirring and passionate defense of religious freedom for people of all faiths, and how our society is called to more than tolerance. We are called to love. As Americans living in a free country, we don't really know what religious freedom is. We're so privileged. We live in this incredible country with freedom and rights. And we take for granted and don't realize that we're exercising this freedom every day. That our founders, when they enumerated our inalienable rights, named freedom of religion first. Because it's that founding, it's that bedrock that protects us from government power. It's that critical buffer between the state and the individual that allows for true human flourishing. And then what's in our hearts and what's in our minds, it needs to be protected from the government. And so then freedom of worship is not freedom of religion. Let me say that one more time. Freedom of worship is not freedom of religion. Asking you to check your religion at the door when you walk into a government building, when you walk onto a university campus, when you decide to walk into the market and make a profit, that's not religious freedom. That's the second-class citizenship that history has warned us about. It's that second-class citizenship that our founders knew we wanted to reject. And so as global citizens, we all have this human right, religious freedom. As global citizens, we all have duties to the government, and we all have duties to God. So then religious freedom is about duty, it's about humility, and it's about love. No religion is an island. If you don't have religious liberty, 
I don't have religious liberty. And we have to team up with people that we disagree with in order to protect this human right. Or a better way to say it is, just don't wait for the bear to eat you last. The best reason, and this is really where the fight is today, is that we're fighting over religious freedom because it's people who believe in nothing, nihilists really, who want to attack the idea of believing in anything at all. And we have to work together, people who believe in anything at all, to protect this important human right. And it's decision time, my friends, for Christians. Do we really believe in the incarnational reality of our faith, that we are called to ultimate fulfillment of who we are in what we believe? If so, then religious freedom really is about duty, but it's also about something else. It's about humility. So then religious freedom is not a political tactic or an evangelistic tool. It's not a political football. It's a human need that the government is not allowed to co-opt for its own purposes. Religious freedom is not an evangelistic tool. It's not a means to an end. It's just a door. It's this common agreement to allow religious conversations to happen between human beings. And the only tool that we have is humility, witnessing authentically in love. That is the way. Religious freedom, then, is about love. And true evangelization is loving well. St. Bruno of the Cross and his order have a beautiful, beautiful phrase. The cross is steady while the world is turning. Think about that image. The world in chaos. And God right at the center unmovable. It has been so fascinating to get to know you these past couple of months. You're an immigrant. You are an immigrant to the United States, and it is clearly a huge part of who you are. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Um, so I was born in Mexico City, and my entire family is Mexican. Everybody's Mexican, <laughs> both sides. Um, and Everyone lives in Mexico except my immediate family. So this is moving here was a really big step because we were cutting ourselves off from 52 first cousins. Um, my dad's one of seven. Like that's it's just my grandmothers are both alive. We we have, you know, big celebrations and my cousins were a very big part of my life growing up. But um, making that decision was really important for my parents and they wanted to give us these opportunities. They thought it would be a good thing. And my parents, you know, they're such a beautiful couple and such a faithful couple. They really trusted God in what he placed in their hearts. And so moving to Miami, my dad was the consulate for, for Miami, um, for Mexico. And I remember that I immediately didn't want to learn English. I didn't speak English. Spanish is my first language. And um, I didn't understand why I had to learn English. My, my mom speaks five languages, so there was no excuse. <laughs> and they wanted us to live in America the way Americans live. I remember one day my dad woke up and he said, um, your mom looks American because she had dyed her hair blonde. And uh, I almost wanted to write a book about that. You know, what does it look like for immigrants when you try to assimilate or you're figuring out who you are in this country? Because some people say it's a melting pot or it's, you know, different analogies for it. For me, I feel like becoming American and choosing to be American didn't mean that I had to hate my other country or hate the culture that came with it. But I was embracing a new set of principles and a new set of ideas and ways to organize society. Um, and I fell in love with the Constitution. I remember, I still remember 
my seventh grade civics class and how excited I was to learn about the different rules and the process and the way that America works because um, it's very different from the process in Mexico. And it is very, um, it engages the individual in a way that the Mex- Mexican Republic does not, right? So two republics that have a very different manifestation of what it means to be represented by your government. Um, and the stark poverty and, you know, limitations for women and for the individual in Mexico is a big, big contrast. It's a free nation. It's beautiful. It's got incredible things about it, but it is different. And I love the rule of law. Um, and I love reading and I love history. So I did, I, I fell in love with the founding, um, and, and the idea that people could come together and reject the notion of something and start something new and run it well and design it for incremental change, which for me really spoke to the tradition of the Catholic church. Because our church, people always think, oh, in 10 years, we'll do this. And I laugh. I'm like, yeah, our church doesn't think in years. It thinks in centuries, if not beyond that. And, um, and it's the same thing with the American Constitution. We're such a young nation. What will we do with this freedom? What will we do with this document that was created not so many years ago? People think about um, the changes that we've seen in terms of race, even for immigration. Just wait and see. The things that will happen beyond, you know, when I'm dead and buried, um, what could be? There's a great hope in the prosperity that comes from being American. I'm curious about just who shared the faith with you. Did it come from mom and dad? Did it come from grandma and grandpa? Was it as much cultural inheritance as it was real faith formation for you as a younger person? My parents didn't force the faith on us once we were confirmed, if you want church, going to church was on you. Being on time was on you. I, the car left at this hour. And if you were in it, good. And if you weren't, that's your fault. You can walk. So, <laughs> yeah, my dad's very Mexican. Um, and uh, I think that that really instilled a sense of like self-motivation and, um, and responsibility for my own faith. But they didn't pressure me to become, to be Catholic. Um, we went to different services. I went to temple with my friends. I saw their bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. We talked about it. We talked about what it means to be Muslim. Um, my parents are, you know, thank God, really well read and, um, helped me understand some of the differences between the relationship between God and the individual in different religions. And I really chose, I mean, I remember my confirmation essay and the reflections on why I wanted to be Catholic. I feel like most of my friends did their confirmation and didn't know why they chose to be Catholic. And it was, I was eager for it. I was eager for my first communion. My parents are very, their parenting style was strict in behavior, but free in thought. So you could think whatever you wanted and they wanted to know what you thought, but there was, there was a structure to the day that you had to follow and you like, you had to have certain behaviors, curfews or whatever, but um, they didn't want us to be robots. And my mom in particular was really big on that. I think coming from a very traditional Mexican family, she wanted us to think for ourselves. And she really understood kind of the power of the female mind and, um, and what happens when you let it, let it really become what it's supposed to become. But it was tough growing up as a minority. It was tough in school being a non-English speaker. I definitely felt like an outsider. Um... You think about the moment that we're living in now and where racism and discrimination becomes a topic. And um, that was a big thing for me. I did a lot of enrichment programs and magnet school programs. And um, in some places, Hispanics were a majority and it was 
really, really comfortable. And in some instances, we're a, we were a minority and I got made fun of for one reason or another, mispronouncing different names or different things. Just the nature of fluctuating like that from majority to minority had to have taken its toll on you as a young person. And I'm, I'm just wondering about through the immigration process, through your upbringing, through the faith, how has that formed you spiritually? How do you pray? I, I pray in Spanish for sure, especially the rosary. My grandmother taught me how to say the rosary and I say it in Spanish. Um, some of the, you know, some of the prayers that I learned in confirmation um, or the more kind of like St. Michael, the archangel, it will always be in English for me. And it's very powerful for me. Um, but there's also, I mean, I pray in French too. I spent four years in Montreal and um, there are some prayers that I learned in French. I, that's why to me, like pray in whatever. And sometimes don't say words at all. God gets it. He's with you. I know a lot of people consider what you do to be really in the thick of culture war, but you're a Catholic woman. You're an incredible Catholic woman. And I'm just wondering how you bring faith to that space on a daily basis. You know, um, I think we forget that we're Catholic first. So I talk a lot about second class citizenship and how um, we tend to lower the importance of our religious identity to our political identity. Um, and that's the first thing we, that's step number one that we should correct is thinking about any of these social issues, but even economic issues from the perspective of how the church views the world and who we are meant to be as human beings and how we can really flourish and have the freedom to flourish as individuals. So that's the first lens for me as Catholic first. Um, and on these issues of division, it's really kind of discerning and thinking about what you would want for someone else, not what you want for yourself, right? So I came over on an American Airlines plane, um, but I definitely struggled as an immigrant going through the process. I had to choose to become a citizen by myself. The biometrics exam is a thing and it's not super fun and it's kind of degrading. Um, standing outside in line, um, waiting for your papers is, is hard. But, and I remember those memories, they're real. And they're, and, and looking at a guard as if like, do I get to be a part of this? Do I get to, and I get why they do it now when I'm on the other side of it so that you value what you're doing. It's really important. It felt like I wasn't good enough to be an American, you know? And I understand why some people feel that way and they have anger toward the immigration system. And that's not something any policy is gonna change. It's something that our treatment of human beings is going to change, you know, and the way that we value human beings and treat each other and talk to each other. There's no reason for officers not to be nice. Indeed. So what do we do with the term church and state and the conversation around the separation of church and state, especially regarding just the, uh, the, the deep seated notions of religious liberty in this country? You know, I think that it's the spirit of the phrase and remembering where it came from and why it's so important. When we when the when the U.S. was founded, what we were trying to do was separate the church from the government because we wanted to protect the church. We wanted to protect and church broadly. We wanted to protect an individual person's right to believe what they want to believe and not what the government is telling them to believe. So um, having our freedom not be subservient to the government, to the government, having our organized church, even if it's a home church or an institutional church, not have to bow down to the will of the state. 
That is the separation of church and state. It's a buffer. It's a protection for the individual and the institution from the government co-opting it for its own desires, means and ends. So people use freedom from religion rather than freedom of religion. And that's why I say that the fight is about believing in something and believing in nothing. If you believe in something, you know that just the concept of God is enough and important enough to protect you from the government. If you believe in nothing, you have nothing. All you have is the government. Do you really want this government to be all you have? You've said that religious freedom and advocating for it is not a means of evangelization. But let me ask, what is evangelization for you? And is it a part of who you are at the Beckett Fund? It's remembering the key word, which is freedom and understanding free will and understanding that friendship is the first place that you can go if you want to evangelize. If you want to evangelize someone, it's as I understand it, it's because you care about the other human being because you care about the person in front of you. So if you knew that I didn't believe in God, your heart immediately should desire that I do. Um, but that's a, you're proposing that you're not going to force me, uh, shame me. You know, you're not going to use any negative tactics to try to do that. You're going to try to not even persuade me, just propose the idea that God might be something good in my life. Um, acts of service and kindness are, are great for that because you're showing someone the fruits of having God in your life and why you're not doing that just selfishly because you feel like baking cookies and giving them cookies. You're doing it because you care about them and you want to show them God's love. So that's this idea that you're compelled to do good things when you believe in God and you see Christ in someone else, right? You're not forcing anyone to do anything. And I think that's what people forget is you, in tolerating each other, we are just allowing people to live their own lives, but we're not really interacting. We're not having any conversations. And in not getting to know each other, I get to assume a lot of stuff about you. And the moment that I create that distance and I'm assuming things, you become really scary. And all of a sudden I feel threatened and there's danger there because I fear the unknown. That's a natural human impulse. And when I do that, I want to create barriers between us and I want you to never be able to come near me. That's where we are right now. We are so full of fear that we can't see the beauty of what happens when we open up those doors and have those interactions, even if they don't end where we want them to end. It's very easy to love people who are just like you. It's very easy to have friends that look like you, talk like you, come from the same places that you come from. But the moment that you introduce difference, you're going to naturally introduce conflict. Yeah, we assume that because someone won't come to church with us, they don't actually believe what we believe or that they wouldn't um, be inspired by the same, same things that inspire us. Some of the best friendships I have are with people who believe exactly the opposite of what I believe and who hate my work, hate my work, think that I am doing horrible things because they have a different understanding of the way that society should be moving. They don't believe in the church or they feel like they were wronged by the church in some way. They would like to see it, um, like to see us move past the idea of an institution, institutional church. Um, but they respect my love of tradition and beauty and, you know, 2000 years of brilliance <laughs> and intellectual tradition. But, um, but they, they also be beyond respecting me. They love me and they know that that matters to me. And so they're not going to make it hard for, to, to stay in a relationship with me by making me feel bad about it. They tell me I disagree with you, but that doesn't mean we don't go to dinner and care for each other or take each other up to the hospital or, you know, like we're human beings. We got to get out of our 
our fears and our ideas that because someone disagrees with us, they can't love us. I think I'm lovable. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree. I'm wondering, uh, you know, OSV Talks is all about creativity and innovation and ministry. And I'm just wondering, is the Beckett Fund a place of innovation and creativity? Yeah, um, I would say the Beckett Fund mission is and has been for 25 years innovative in that it took something that the church believes and built on it without the kind of understanding that it has religious underpinnings, but made it universal the way um, the way that only America can. Right. And so when you talk about religious freedom, not necessarily talking about it just for yourself, it's really easy immediately to become tribal and to think, well, I'm being persecuted and I want this. And the reality is, if you feel attacked and we're seeing this with the Jewish community in New York right now, if you're being attacked by your government, someone else is next. Someone else is on that list. Don't wait for the bear to eat you last and don't pretend like it's only about you. I mean, they don't. Um, we should all come in and rush in and talk about each other, knowing that that target is on your back next. And if we just thought about it in that way, I think that our language would become a little bit different. Um, and also thinking about the language of compassion and understanding that the people on the other side, um, even if they do have the, your, you know, worst interests at heart, um, are still human beings and still people who go home and close their laptops and cry sometimes because yeah. they feel lost too. And so if we were to respond with that kind of love and grace, um, understanding that, yes, we're in a fight, but at the end of the day, we're all people, um, you don't have to go tit for tat. You don't have to respond with vitriol when it's sent your way. That's actually not the best way to do that. Snark is never rewarded. Um, the best thing to do is to come back and say, we disagree. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're a human person too. And I'm going to try my hardest to defeat what you're doing, but still pray for you. Um, there's a lot that could be done and it has much more to do with our culture than it, than it does with the concept of religious freedom. People trying to manipulate religious freedom to turn it into a political tactic is, is the problem. It seems like it's a huge problem. I I'm curious about, uh, just what, in our call to action, I, so many of us that are faith-filled, that are engaging our professional lives, it almost feels like we're being asked to leave our faith at the door, to not bring it with us in moral decision-making and, and the values and the and the justice that we advocate for. Um, is, this, is this what religious freedom is? Is it to like not bring faith with us when we're engaging good decision-making? It makes me crazy because there's no way that a human being, once they accept a belief, can pretend like it doesn't affect their lives in a transformational way. Impossible. Whether it's coming to Christ, rejecting Christ, becoming any kind of religious or non-religious, or even think about um, when someone reads a new theory and is obsessed with that theory in, ac- in academia, it, it changes their perspective and everything that they do. It influences it in some way. And they want to talk to everyone about it, right? Um, that is, that's, that's how humans work. And so we're deciding that human nature is not really important here, that religion should be checked the moment that you leave your house. It stays there. Um, you only do that there and it's not welcome anywhere else. That misunderstands human nature. It misunderstands um, the value of religion in society, both in recruiting people to do good things that the government cannot do and doesn't even want to do. Do you really want the government with its nine to five perspective? Um, running a soup kitchen when someone's going to show up at 6 p.m. 
Do you want them running your um, help for human trafficking victims when they're going to show up at 11 o'clock at night and no one's going to be there? I mean, think about it. Think of all the things that we do as pillars of civil society, right? As that, um, that support system that goes above and beyond what is um, profitable or what is possible. There are things that we do that are impossible, that are made possible because they come from, for me, Christ-like love. But for others, inspired by whatever it is that they believe in that pushes them to go above and beyond what is required of us as normal people. It's very nice to be decent. It's amazing to make something happen for someone that wouldn't have been possible had you not had that generosity of spirit and charitableness. So what is the behavior? What is the action steps that we need to be trained on to be defenders of religious freedom, but also to be defenders of what it means to be more than just tolerant of each other in faith. Civility, uh, respect, and like I said, love, love, love. Just understand what that word actually means, love. It's not this romantic notion. It's hard work, and it's forgiving when you don't want to, and it's um, listening when you don't want to, and all you want to do is reach across the table and strangle the other person Mm. and tell them to listen to you. Love. And, and I love that Pope Francis gave us this encyclical and this important moment to remind us of the beauty and the call to fraternity. Um, brothers and sisters, we are called to beyond civility, what the intellectual tradition of the church has told us for so many years, which is understanding that the person in front of you is in the likeness and image of God. Just pray a lot. I have the privilege of working with some incredible people. The team at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is full of generous, kind spirits who are not in it for themselves, who understand that what they're doing is fighting for the freedom of every single person in this country and beyond it. And um, and they take that seriously, but they also know that they're instruments, so they don't want it for themselves. And they're in it for the long haul. So. When you think about the kind of sacrifices that people make when they leave high-paying jobs and take a nonprofit job and end up working on things at midnight on Christmas because that's when some of the courts make some of these decisions, um, they're sacrificing family time for people who really highly value family time and who have big families um, because they know that there's something more important. And that inspires me every day looking at this team and what they do. They're incredible people um, and It's a privilege. It really is a privilege to do this kind of work. I never imagined I would get to do this. Never. I do think we're called to die for our faith. And I pray to God that we'll all be ready the day that that knock comes on our door for martyrdom. But that's not what we're being called to do today. Today, we're being called to live for it. These are the inspiring words of Monsi Alvarado the Vice President and Executive Director at the Beckett Fund for Religious Freedom. You can listen to hers and all the OSV Talks at osvtalks.com. We hope you've enjoyed this show. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review our show wherever you like to listen. Contact us at osvtalks.com with your questions and or comments. Friends, innovative thinking is at the core of OSV, and OSV Talks is part of a much larger effort to be a catalyst for Catholic innovation. OSV Institute for Catholic Innovation, in partnership with ODB Films, brings you these talks from prominent Catholic leaders 
to spark discussion, explore new or re-explore old approaches, and inspire creative thinking, all from the heart of the church. Until next time, God bless. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.